All right, guys, good evening and welcome to a Chapter 6 review. That's a Republican Experiment Review of Mr. DeWalta. Hopefully gets you better prepared for your test on Tuesday over Chapter 6, or Chapter 5 and 6, right? The Revolution and the kind of Convention or Constitution kind of chapter, respectively. All right, guys, so to begin kind of the quick review for Chapter, hopefully a lot shorter than the last one, uh, the ch- review for Chapter 6. Uh, the beginning of it focuses on kind of the optimism of the time period, right? America, very, Americans are very excited because of the big victory against Britain. And they're kind of a newfound, new rejuvenated uh, kind of sentiment towards republicanism and towards, you know, now being in charge of themselves and hopefully uh, doing things better than England did, right? Running themselves better than England ever had. So the story kind of revolves around the founding fathers and how they deal with the many obstacles that they'll face uh, after the revolution. All right, guys, so the early part of the chapter focuses on the social and political reforms. So we see some changes going on as far as uh, property voting rights and requirements are lowered, right? Uh, so again, you had to own property back then, and again, this is not universal, um, you know, suffrage for men, but it's a kind of lowering of the property values in general that promote a, a little bit more expansion of democracy and stuff. Uh, we also see the makeup of these voters changing because states are more expanding west, right? capitals are being re- relocated to a more centralized location, more and more people are kind of participating because more and more people have now land open to them uh, to settlement and stuff like that. Uh, the next section focuses now on African Americans in the New Republic. So again, what we see is almost like a double timeline, right? In the North, uh, basically a little bit after 1800, most of those states are on the path towards uh, being completely free, right? No slavery, or very limited or low numbers of slavery. And then in the South, we have the opposite kind of going on, where for a while, again, many did free their slaves. They did recognize the hypocrisy of fighting for independence and you know, keeping, uh, you know, keeping freedom from so many at home, right? With the practice of slavery, but uh, again, because of the cotton gin, because of the expansion of um, you know fields and all those things in the southeast, you know it'll kind of go the opposite way, right? Slave numbers will actually only increase in the south, and it'll be a, a bigger and bigger issue as we get further into uh, the rest of the 1700s and then 1800s. Uh, some other things that are important: um, individuals like Benjamin Banneker, right, scientist from Baltimore, and uh, like Phyllis Wheatley, right, the Boston Muse. Kind of showing that African Americans, right, given the opportunity, given certain experiences, can accomplish just as much as white Americans and do great things. Uh, the next section focuses on kind of women's issues. So we have, you know, only a few changes, right? We have the example of Abigail Adams uh, being very active in kind of civic life and also pushing her husband to remember the ladies, right, and pushing for kind of women's issues. Now, we don't have necessarily an uptick in sort of legal rights or property rights necessarily for women. It does seem like they were a bit more assertive about their roles and challenging, um, you know, their husbands in marriages and stuff like that when those marriages were uh, not working out or abusive and things like that. Uh, the next <laughs> section goes on to discuss the states and kind of some of the different things going on. It's kind of where we ended today with the blueprints for states' governments, right? We talked about how all of them had to be documented, right? Breaking a lot of English tradition as well as uh, natural rights, where in most of them, I believe eight out of the 13 or so, right, protecting individuals from the abuse of tyrants or abuse of any centralized power. And also uh, that most of them were bicameral, right, two houses kind of made up each state's kind of assembly or uh, legislative body. So these were kind of the big things uh, for those different governments. And again, this is all important in their blueprints because they're all kind of going to be, all these issues are going to come back in the national constitution and be a big part of its makeup. Uh, some other stuff going on, and where we left off today was with the beginning of the Articles of Confederation. So, again, there's a very first government adopted by the United States. So, it's a transitional government, right? Initially, it's passed and approved um, 
in late 1777 and it lasts throughout the war and then a bit after. But uh, again, it's basically a government that is uh, very different from our state, right? There was no executive. There was just a unicameral legislature or one body legislature with equal representation. And in order to make changes in that government, you had to have unanimity, unanimity excuse me. Uh, basically, everybody had to agree. All 13 uh, representatives or 13 states needed to agree with an amendment and then they could change it. And that makes things very, very difficult, almost impossible. Uh, but again, for the time being, articles do their job, at least during the war. And after is when the big kind of challenges will arise. Uh, the next uh, parts focus on <laughs> the Western lands. So there's a big debate kind of going on during the Articles of Confederation's kind of founding or establishment, where basically, you know, all these states kind of smell or know that these lands all the way to the Mississippi are going to be opened up for cultivation and for, uh, you know, for Americans now. So New York, Massachusetts, they all make these massive claims out west, all the way to the Mississippi. Now, slowly but surely, they realize that there's no real way and practical way they can administer those lands. So luckily, Virginia is the first kind of straw to fall in 1781. They relinquish their claims to Western lands, and then every other state kind of follows suit. And this is really important because under the Articles, uh, the Congress or that kind of legislative body didn't have the power to tax. So this kind of ended up hurting them pretty bad. So these public lands are going to be one of the main ways that this early government uh, could make money. Okay. All right, guys, the other stuff, the next section focuses on a major achievement of that article is a confederation government. So with all the negative, right, the weak power, the hard to make changes, eventually the reasons they replace it later on, the one thing that it does do fairly well is organize a section of the country. And this will be basically what is now kind of the Ohio Valley area. So this, this will eventually create states from Ohio all the way through to Minnesota and establish kind of a detailed plan to form that. And <laughs> there's a series of these laws passed in the mid-1780s but we collectively know these as the Northwest Ordinance, or sometimes there's Land Ordinance first in 1785 and the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. But they provide pretty detailed kind of layouts for these uh, lands in what we call six by six grids of one mile, one square mile. And uh, they also provide a kind of pathway, a little steady plan towards becoming a state. And that plan was pretty simple. Basically, initially you were uh, given a governor that was in charge along with three judges that were appointed by Congress and you were required to hit certain benchmarks. So once you had 5,000 people, you could uh, basically elect your own assembly. You had your own little mini legislature. And once you had 60,000 landowners, that's when you could uh, basically start the process of writing a state constitution and eventually apply for statehood. So it provided a clear pathway, a clear organization to become a state. And again, that'll affect all the way from Ohio through to Minnesota later on. Um, the important thing also with that is it established a president with slavery. So all those that are founded in this way, this Northwest Ordinance, will be free uh, under this, uh, these, these plans and this ordinance. So that will establish, kind of solidify the North being you know, what we call like a free zone, right, a free area. Of course, things will be very different in the South. Uh, the middle part of the chapter focuses some more on some of the rivalries going on between a group of nationalists and the uh, other factions of the government. You have this big battle going on of... You know, some people know and believe that the Articles of Confederation need to be stronger. We need a strong central government. It's not working. It's not being effective. And, you know, there's even a conspiracy involved called the Newburgh Conspiracy, where eventually Washington has to get involved and kind of chill everybody out. But it gets pretty scary for a while, and again, there's people on both sides of the fence. Um, many want to guard those states and their rights and their right to tax and all that. Others see it's not working. We have to try something else. So this is a big kind of a deal that's going on. Some other stuff going on diplomatically, uh, we have issues with um, 
the, the first kind of international issues a little bit with the British and with the Spanish. So on the British front, because of states and this new federal government, right, the Articles government failing to secure those debts that we kind of promised them as a part of the Treaty of Paris of 1783, uh, they're refusing to remove some troops from the Ohio Valley in that Northwest Territory. So you basically have a British army that's kind of violating American sovereignty. And uh, you know, the Americans aren't really in a position to kind of even do anything about it. So seen as kind of a big embarrassment and again, highlighting the weaknesses of that Articles government, the Confederation government. On the Spanish part, the Spanish do something in uh, the mid-1780s uh, to also mess with this. And that is they close the port of New Orleans, which has massive economic effects. I'll elaborate a little bit more in class on why that is. But, uh, you know, even when the government tries to negotiate with them, things fall apart. They don't work out. So the combination of these two things shed light on, you know, the articles are failing because the government's weak. There's no power to tax. It's hard to make changes. And we're not even dealing on the same level with these bigger countries. We're kind of pushing us around and really messing with our sovereignty, our freedom. So these are going to be some of the big things going on uh, through this time. All right, guys, in the uh, later, as we get like past 1785, right, we see kind of the line solidifying with people like Madison and Hamilton and Jefferson, as well as Washington, being what we call kind of nationalists, sometimes federalists, and being the big proponents of creating a stronger central government. Uh, in reality, it's natural kind of, uh, uh, there's the natural timeline of things that would help push things into that direction. So Madison is kind of one of the key uh, sort of, you know, later on goes on to be known as the father of the Constitution, a key kind of political thinker of the time. But what happens in uh, late uh, in the late 1700s is, or sorry, mid 1700s in 86 is there's an agreement to meet at a place called Annapolis for an Annapolis convention, and uh, a few of the states do show up, but many do not show up. Period. And again, they were there to discuss changes to the to this Articles Confederation government, try to pass new things to kind of keep it updated. Again, it's a disaster; it doesn't go well. They just meet. They agree to meet again in 1787 in Philadelphia, which that will be the big, big, really important meeting. Now, between that time, what happens is Shays' Rebellion. So this takes place in 1786, led by a veteran of the American Revolution, fought at Bunker Hill, a guy named Daniel Shays. And his situation is one that's pretty common for that time period, and that is he's a veteran of the war. His taxes are high. He's very frustrated because he hasn't collected a lot of those things that were promised to him when he fought in the war. And he took up arms. Eventually, they kind of took over a portion of Western Massachusetts. Now, they are dealt with by the Massachusetts militia, but this really freaks a lot of the founding fathers out, a lot of the leaders all over the colonies. And this gives them the kind of little motivation or the little kind of fire under their butts to go to Philadelphia and see if they can instill some changes and see if they can fix things. So again, Shays' Rebellion is a key thing in getting that movement going. As far as the convention itself, again, this happens in the kind of late spring of 1787. 55 men will uh, represent 12 of the colonies. Rhode Island did not show up. Uh, again, we'll talk in class about their backgrounds and stuff like that, right? Most of them affluent, most of them kind of legal background, if not farmers. There's a decent mix of the different occupations. Now, from a very early standpoint, it's clear there's two kind of primary plans that take hold. And that is the Virginia plan. Sometimes you might know this is a big state plan. And both of these reflect the representation, right? So for the Virginia plan, the plan was to have a government that was uh, would apportion, right, or section out the number of representatives by population. Now, this works for some, right? For Virginia, New York, Massachusetts, they're going to have massive representation in the Senate or this Congress, whatever you want to call it. But for the little guys, right? For New Jersey, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Delaware, that's not going to be so great because their voice is kind of limited because they're going to have less members if it's assigned by population. 
So for the Virginia plan, again, benefited those populous states. So the counter to this, and the Virginia plan is kind of uh, Madison's baby. Under the New Jersey plan, sometimes called the small state plan, was the opposite, kind of the total, uh, the other direction. This provided for equal representation, no matter the population. So everybody has an equal voice in this new Senate, this new Congress, um, doesn't matter the population. So, you know, again, Rhode Island, the same as Virginia, the same as Georgia, same as New York, same as uh, Massachusetts. But the big states did not like that, right? Because in their view, you cannot compare, you know, the trade of a colony like New York or Virginia to that of Rhode Island, to that of Delaware, to that of Maryland. Uh, you know, they contribute more, they deserve a bigger say would be kind of their main argument. The key thing with these two plans is know that basically they get fused together and then what we have what we know as the Connecticut Compromise, which is provides for two houses, right? A bicameral legislature with a House of Representatives that's designated by population and then a Senate that is all equal representation. So basically the two plans fused together and that's what we have today right, in our U.S. Congress. All right, some of the other things kind of going on, uh, the slavery issue is a massive one, one that almost kind of wrecks everything towards the end. And again, the big deal here has again to do with uh, census and how we count population, right? For a lot of the northern uh, colonies, they do not believe that slaves should be counted, period, right? Because they're counted as property back in their home states. And then the you know, places like Virginia, like the Carolinas and so forth do want to count their slaves because that'll give them more power when it comes down to that Congress and that apportionment for these different uh, you know, bodies and stuff in the government. So eventually they agree on the, what we call a three-fifths compromise, right? That uh, they will uh, count to five slaves as basically three people, as three white Americans. And that'll be the way they uh, deal with that issue. So again, one of the ugly things, one of the things that a lot of them knew where it was gonna be a problem later on and not gonna go away, but um, you know, the, the deal they had to make and the way things, that's the way things were done to get the, the plan moving and get it approved into and towards ratification. All right, guys, as we get this thing finalized, right, in kind of uh, mid-September, it eventually, the key thing here is also these delegates are in a weird spot. I'll go over this in class, but in a lot of ways, they were kind of committing, not necessarily treason, but they were really close to it because some of them had instructions to go and kind of see what the meeting was about, but not to create a whole new government. So when they head back to their states, they basically have rewritten this thing, and they now need to kind of push for its either approval or disapproval. So these two groups that are kind of for it and against it, we know as the Federalists and Anti-Federalists. So the Federalists would be people like Hamilton, Madison, uh, even Washington would be considered one. And then the Anti-Federalists are those basically against ratification, who did not like this new constitution, and mostly on the grounds of the lacking a Bill of Rights, a clearly stated Bill of Rights. And that's the important thing when discussing the Anti-Federalists is that legacy of they kept uh, those, you know, that them fighting so hard is why we have the Bill of Rights that are right, why we have amendments 1 through 10. And it sets a good precedent for, you know, compromise and for uh, this new government in the future. Um, and towards the end, just some of the important things, right, the way it's adopted is also very special. And they come up with a very nifty way where not all had to approve it, just nine had to do it. As soon as nine do it, this thing goes into effect for all of the colonies. So that was a good way to kind of meet, move things forward. They also got away from, you know, the fear was they send this back to the home assemblies and the assemblies will be so jealous of what happened and what happened and what things that were done that they would shoot it down right away. So instead of it going to the assemblies, it would go to special conventions that would help protect it from some of those assemblies and give it a better shot at passing. But uh, again, eventually it will pass. And then with the, those minor changes of the Bill of Rights, which Madison will add, uh, soon thereafter in the early 1790s, 
Uh, we have, I'm sorry, the late 1780s. We have now a new government that replaces the articles and will put us on the path of hopefully greatness, right? Uh, good. Uh, sorry, I know I sped up towards the end. I just want to make sure you get it a lot of, uh, you know, not take as long as I did with the last chapter. But thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. And we'll see you in class. Have a great night.